The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 52 of the Ascena Board Games. We're back. You can't shut us up. You can't stop the signal. I'm Brian. I'm here with Joe and Frank and Mike and Jason, as per usual. I'm going to be cautiously optimistic and say no one's sick. So... Hooray! Yes, exactly. Wow. So this this may be the first time in a while that we've got everybody here and more or less healthy. I'm not going to say happy necessarily, because (laughs) at least one of us had a late night surprise party at their house. (laughs) We are here this month to talk about expansions. When you get a game and you want more of the game and you need a way to add more stuff, you get expansions. Please keep in mind that this episode does require you to listen to the base game that is our other episode. Yes, you must listen to the base podcast first in order to use this episode. (laughs) Expansions kind of come in a couple different classes. There's the type that is just more stuff. You know, here's more cards, here's more characters, here's more bad guys, whatever it is. And then there are expansions that sort of fundamentally add or change mechanics of the game. We've got some of both on our list here. There's obviously a bazillion expansions out there. And we've got some ones that we feel very strongly about, both positive and negative. So we'll start yammering on about them and uh, we'll see what you guys think. Real quick, Brian, I want to talk about the Hidden Third expansion, which are the expansions that probably just should have been included in the base game. Ah, yes, the day one yeah. DLC expansion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll talk about some of those. Yeah, there are a few of those. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Expansions are something that a lot of us probably think of as a fairly recent innovation in board games. But as usual, Frank is here to prove that theory wrong. There is a couple of good threads on the geek describing what's the first expansion. And I'm pretty comfortable saying that it's Monopoly Stock Exchange add-on from 1936. This was designed by C.B. Hewison and just often called Stock Exchange. It was published by a different company, Capital Novelty Company, as an expansion for three different games by Parker Brothers. Hmm. There's Monopoly, Easy Money, and Finance. The other two are basically Monopoly knockoffs by Parker Brothers knocking off their own game because that's a thing. Well, nobody ever does that. Yeah, totally. Actually was later purchased and republished by Parker Brothers a couple times. It really gives you a stock exchange on the board with different stocks that you can buy and sell that work pretty much like most stock exchange games from the time period. You know, stocks go up and down. There are chance and community chests that will change the stock values and do payouts and things. Oh, so it is slightly connected to the core games. It sounded almost like it was a separate game you're playing on the side. Almost completely. You could spend money on stocks. I mean, that's the core. And yeah, that's how it could drop into easy money and finance as well. Hmm. But no, they actually manipulated it. There's also a new board space that goes over free parking, so that free parking actually does something. (laughs) Okay. Because everybody insists that free parking has to do something. I was going to say, is that where that started? I wonder if that is the impetus of free parking does something. 
No. Maybe. I'm not sure how many people got the expansion in the intervening 60, 70 years before we played it as children. But I never played it, actually, but just found it. I have seen it you know, around and everything, especially in the 90s when it came out, but that was the thing. So I guess the question is, and since we haven't played it, this is all speculation, but does it make the game better? It sounds like it makes the game more. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's just more. I have heard from some people that it's really nice and it adds quite a bit to it. I, you know, it's Monopoly. Yeah. It's okay. I don't see a case where you can buy and sell when you cross it, which would be amazing. Hmm. And that would be a big change in the part of the rules. Well, it's interesting to know that people had the idea. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that it was like, here's another company that just says, hey, that's a cool game. What if you bought this to add on to that game that other people made? Yeah, that it was by a different company is not something we see ever, yeah. except for maybe Stratomatic Baseball, which would be the king of the expansions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, at that point, it's almost like homebrew content for something. Yeah, totally. Where it's like somebody else is like, hey, here's the thing I made for this game. Just in a slightly more official capacity. But, like, you know, the reason we don't see that a lot anymore is IP protection and stuff like right. that. Yeah, it's it's more or less a fan-provided content. Yeah, totally. So, next up is, I think, the king of expansions. This is really just said where- Stratomatic Baseball was the king of expansions, Frank. No, not really. That just had a billion teams and years and everything and, you know, stat pack add-ons. But really, Cosmic Encounters from 1977, that would be Peter Lotka, Bill Everidge, and of course, published by Leisure Pastimes, Mayfair, and everyone. I mean, when you see the modern versions of Cosmic Encounters, you generally get everything in a box, or maybe a box add-on. When you go back to the original, there were nine expansions. Yeah. And this was just stunning for a game, and they just kept doing it. In particular, the two big ones were Flares, were actually an early expansion and not in the original game, which probably stunned some people because you've never seen a version without Flares. As well, Lucre, which gave you an alternate income and money source, is in a lot of the games now, but was a deep change to the game since you had a, a new economy, a new thing that you could deal with, as well as new options to pull guys out of the warp. I think that's the biggest change to the game. I really like the Lucre Aliens and prefer to play a game with that. Because it adds a level of complexity, I don't know if a lot of the new ones include it. Yeah, so all of these, or most of these, I think, also did include a new type of mechanic. And a bunch of races that use it. And a bunch of aliens that use it. Yeah, totally. I think this was in what we now think of as kind of the early days of modern board gaming. And it's like, you know, well, we made this game and we've played it around with our group. We think it's pretty good. And then it seems almost like every year or so somebody thought, hey, here's a cool idea. Why don't we try this? Okay, cool. Make that an expansion. Yeah, totally. It was not a big planned out process as some of the ones are. Yeah. And these expansions came bagged. So it was literally just a plastic bag with a bit of card stamped over it and the pieces. That was how you got these. No boxes or anything. And you just stuffed them in the box. Of course, the worst Cosmic Encounter expansion was the last one, which is Moons. I don't know if anyone ever plays with Moons. They're just chaos in a box. They will occasionally rapidly change the game. Cosmic Encounter is a light, fluffy, capricious game. Moons turn that up to 11 so that the Moons drive the game. Nothing else matters. 
And, you know, that really destroys the game because Gossip Encounters has some stuff going on with the allies and the cone. But Moons, man. <laughs> Just add more chaos to an already chaotic game. Yeah, and overpowered chaos. So Good to know. Oh, wow. I'm doing all these. Yeah, well, this is the tradition. You do all the early stuff and then you can take some time off. Good point. <laughs> so 1983, in that same vein, we got Talisman. Sadly, the designer of Talisman, Robert Harris, really only did one other game, but he did a lot of expansions for Games Workshop for the original Talisman. Boy, did he. And again, I'm going back to the original Talisman, but most of the variants have similar things. The first big change to Talisman was the alternate endings deck. So it was a deck of six cards and Talisman the expansion, because, okay, that makes sense. There was surely only going to be one. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever played Talisman with the original Crown of Command. It was pretty tedious, yeah. Yeah, when you got to the middle, basically what you did is slowly try to suck hit points from the other people on your turn. That was your entire turn. And a lot of the powers could heal faster than you could actually remove their hit points. So it would take an hour or two sometimes to actually finish the game until someone else made it there and fought you for the Crown of Command. It was annoying. Alternate endings kind of added basically like insta-kill monsters, or you have to fight and kill the monster at the end. It also added the horrible black void, where the first person who makes the middle dies and loses. Yes. (laughs) And then you pick a new card. I remember at the time when we were playing a lot of Talisman, that really spiced things up a lot, because, as you say, the original ending was a little bit, actually a lot tedious. Yeah. So it was a definite improvement. And you'll see that None of the expansions or versions or things have a thing like Crown of Command because it sucks. Yeah, they've learned from that at least. They also had, I remember a bunch of the expansions, there was a point where there was like a separate expansion board at every corner of the board. Mm -hmm. It functionally doubled the size of the game's table footprint just because every corner of the board had like a whole little mini town you could go through. Yeah, that was in the later editions. In the original, it was a smaller board than the original that just sat somewhere and the sprawl got really bad. Mm-hmm. I think one of the best that kept going through all of them is the city. The city's the one place in Talisman where you could actually go and choose to enter a shop mm-hmm. from your die roll because you could end by going into a shop. And so you could buy stuff, get services and everything reliably. And I think the city's the other really great expansion for Talisman simply because there's something controllable, predictable that feels right. I don't know, man. Controllable and predictable doesn't sound like Talisman to me. No, but you want to level up. You want to get stuff. And really, Talisman didn't have a reliable way to do that. Stuff just happened. And the worst is actually the reverse of that. I don't know. Timescape is one of the most sought-after expansions, but it's a bag of crazy. It includes a journey into basically the 40k universe or hopping across regions. It includes a spaghetti-looking board. And you can't choose where you go. You just kind of fall through random encounters, basically. Wait a minute. Is that the expansion that says just get out your copy of Relic and then <laughs> move your pieces back <laughs> between them? Uh, no, 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 not so much. Oh, okay. But it does include a lot of 40K and orcs with a K, etc. And other stuff. And didn't they have like their Chainsaw Warrior who was like from another random Absolutely. game? Absolutely. There's a Chainsaw Warrior. <laughs> yeah. And basically just random weirdness. But the stuff was either overpowered or would kill you instantly. It was really suddenly dramatic. I almost didn't want to go there because you'd probably die. It seems like it's very much a, here are some other games we produce. If you find this stuff interesting, add it to your talisman yeah, totally. game. 
it's still heavily sought after. I sold mine for a fortune nice. when I got rid of my second edition. But That <sighs> kind of brings up a topic that I was thinking about earlier, which is that new editions of board games, there are certain games and certain companies that periodically get new editions, which are often an improvement. You know, you revise things, you expand out some stuff. But I feel like doing expansions to a game that then gets another edition is kind of an extra painful way to do it. Because it's like, you know, you bought this base game, you bought these three or four expansions, well, now I've got a new edition. So it doesn't have any of that stuff, and you're going to have to buy those same expansions again if you want them. <coughs> yeah, totally. Also the multiverse. <coughs> <laughs> yeah. And Talisman. Yeah. I'm happy to buy them, but also it doesn't feel great. It does not. Yeah, the third edition was a great improvement, but it did break all the second edition expansions. But there were so many errata and rules questions yeah. and things in the files for that second edition. It was just pain to play. Mm-hmm. All right, well. Okay, the last of Frank. It's a little bit like the last of Sheila, but less coherent. <laughs> or perhaps the last of us. Ooh. Ooh. I haven't seen it It's yet, real good. I want to. It's real good. Yeah, figures. So El Grande, 1995. Oh, Grande is a great game. Area control. I mean, it's just area control. There's nothing else in the game. But um, the original game has a little bit of weirdness going on with turn order because you select turn order and then you separate and then select what power card you are. The King and Intrigue expansion basically combined turn order with the powers that you use to move people around just on one card. It simplified the game as well as the more powerful things get to go later or earlier, depending on what would be more balancing for that particular action. And you weren't allowed to choose a power card that had already been chosen that turn. So basically, you'd go around the table, and someone would put up a power card so you'd know what they were going to do, and you would decide whether you wanted to go before or after that, and what action you wanted to take. So it really almost changed the game completely. That simple change of combining those two mechanics. Because you were thinking about, oh, I see what he's going to do. Oh, I need to respond to that. But I can't. Maybe I can, you know. Go first and get some stuff before. Yeah. So was that the first game or expansion that you know of that dealt with, like, how early do you go versus other stuff? Like, Last Will does that. I think Fresco does something similar. It was one of the first, and in particular, the mechanic was actually taken from another Cromer game that I think's earlier. Magalon, there we go. Oh, it's not, Magalon's later. Okay. So, never mind. But yeah, if you look at Magalon, it's a gorgeous little race game that uses that same mechanic with kind of overdone Ravensburger giant big box stuff going. Huh. Okay. Yeah. All right, Frank, we're done talking to you for a while. Yeah, right. I'll just go away and hide. No, no, no. We still like your feedback sometimes. Let you talk about Arkham CCG for oh, a while. Okay. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> you got plenty of time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the rest of this list is just Arkham CCG, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Oh, wow, it all is, isn't it? Y'all are just now realizing this? It always was. So the next game I want to talk about is Battlestar Galactica, designed by Gorni Knetza of Fantasy Flight Games. It had a series of expansions, and it does something that, you know, a lot of modern board games do, which is it provides a set of new optional rules that you can introduce kind of in piecemeal to your game. They're very much designed to be like, hey, here's three or four optional rules. You should use all of these three or four optional rules together, but you can also just use them piecemeal if you want. Famously, the Pegasus expansion comes along with... A new ending 
called New Caprica, which is famously terrible. Mm-hmm. And it's terrible in two ways. Once you do all the appropriate jumping, you have then a completely different game phase where you play almost a mostly different game as you're trying to advance on a different track to complete the victory or loss. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I just saw... So, obviously, on Board Game Geek, they advertise expansion prices. Mm-hmm. Does anyone want to guess <laughs> how much the Pegasus expansion is going for on Amazon right now? I think I got mine for 100 and that was imported from Germany, so I'm sure it's even worse than that. So, the ad that's on this page is for $429. Oh. <laughs> wow. wow. I mean, a game that's not in print anymore. You see stuff like that. Sure. But, um, anyway, New Caprica was total garbage. And also, it greatly lines up with the show where New Caprica in the show was also total garbage. <laughs> so it's it's a beautiful spiral of reality and game meeting. It's also functionally a way of making sure that humans never win. Because <laughs> like, it's comically difficult. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, this is the one where you have to evacuate all the stupid ships, and every ship you don't evacuate, you lose those resources. Yep. Ugh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh, man. The trauma from that game. <laughs> the reason, in some ways, that Battlestar Galactica is an interesting example is also in the Pegasus is the new ship, which is the, oh my gosh. Other Battlestar? Yeah, it's uh, the... It's a newer version. What's the ship name, though? My gosh, why? Isn't it the Pegasus? It's the Pegasus. The Pegasus. That's, that's exactly what it is. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, the Pegasus, which is a great expansion to the game, right? Like, I included it in every version. And Treachery Cards, which were not in the original game, mm. which is crazy to think about now, because Treachery Cards are so important to giving the Cylons, like, something to do mm-hmm. after they reveal, which is crazy. As the first expansion, it has a couple of optional rules that are flops, and has a couple of optional rules that are, like, just permanent in any game of Battlestar Galactica I play. Famously, Battlestar Galactica has many times tried to change the way their game ends, and all of them have been bad. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like this is one of those games, maybe the first one, certainly the first one we're talking about, where basically there are enough expansions with enough variable quality that any given game group kind of curates, this is our ideal set of expansions, and that's just what we use. Terraforming Mars is kind of the same way. It's like, well, we always use this, we never use that, sometimes we use some of these. Yeah, and I think that is the one smart thing that they did with Battlestar Galactica expansions is, like, everything is modular. So if your group doesn't like something, like, all of our game groups really despise the new Caprica expansion, like, just don't use it. Mm-hmm. And then it it is fascinating that it just seems like they did a great job of pairing, for our gaming group at least, part of it, a modular expansion that we love and part of an expansion that we hate, all in one box. Yeah. All I'm going to say is that those people who are shopping on Amazon are not paying $400 for New Caprica. <laughs> That's true. No, they're not. Just touching on some other... I think one of the more interesting things about Star Galactica is the way they've tried to make the game end in different ways in the other two expansions. So in the Exodus expansion, they introduced the Ionian Nebula, and they introduced you having a bunch of random characters on the board that you try to influence. And at the end of the game, you like tally up how many are positive and how many are negative. It's like the trial in Battlestar Galactica. It makes no sense. It's the most fiddly ever. No one ever plays with it. So that's Exodus. And then Daybreak is less bad. Daybreak just makes the game longer, which I think makes it a little easier for the Cylons to win. Where it's like you just have to go further to get to Earth and you have to get to the original place you were trying to get to. 
Did Pegasus come with the plastic base stars? I think it did. Pegasus did come with the plastic base stars, yep. Yes, because the base game was cardboard. Mm-hmm. Yep, pure cardboard. Well, that's not pure cardboard. The base stars were cardboard. If I remember correctly, I think this is the game where at one point they produced like a big mouse pad style material battle mat for the game that just kind of laid all the stuff out. And it was several expansions into the process when they released that, and they didn't even have the new Caprica stuff on the playmat, which included literally everything else. That was a fan-made one that I found. Oh, was it? Okay. (laughs) It is telling the fans. I I thought there was an official one that did that, but okay. (laughs) And we've talked about Battlestar Galactica without mentioning Galactica 1980, or are we just forgetting Uh, that existed? I mean, we're we're trying. We're trying real hard. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Well, it's facing its inevitable reboot, so we'll see how the new one goes. <laughs> oh, dear. Are, they, are they re-remaking Battlestar? They sure are. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, obviously, if you wanted to go get Battlestar Galactica now, it's kind of prohibitively expensive. Mm-hmm. But Battlestar Galactica was re-implemented by Unfathomable, and frankly, I think Unfathomable is just a better game than Battlestar, minus the fact that, like... That kind of game really benefits from an expansion or two to really give it the kind of content depth you want. So if you're looking to play a game in the vein of Battlestar Galactica, Unfathomable is an excellent re-implementation of the same kind of conceptual rules. Yeah, they learned a lot from the various expansions and stuff, and the base game is a lot more polished. Yeah. I am super interested to see how they're going to do expansions to Unfathomable. My theory is that they will do different monsters that are chasing you, right? Instead of having Father Dagon and Mother Hydra, have it be a different set of creatures. Yeah, maybe Cthulhu shows you. up, or yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And have different effects. But again, no idea, because they haven't announced any expansions for it, which is super weird. Yeah. yeah, it's very unusual. I think the thing that I kind of want the most in that game is new playable characters, because especially compared to what Battlestar Galactica ended with, there are so few characters in that game to choose from. Yeah. I will say that Battlestar Galactica is one of the best mergers of gameplay and theme that has ever come out. I mean, it captures the feel of the show so thoroughly. And I was really kind of doubtful because we all know that Dune is a great game. And then when they did it as, what was it, Imperium Rex, where they basically rethemed it to their Twilight Imperium universe, it was kind of meh, just because you lost the theme. But Unfathomable holds up surprisingly well with the retheme. Again, it'll be interesting to see how they do some of the gods, because many of the Eldritch gods are not water-based. Yeah. but Well, I mean, yeah. we don't even know that they're going to do that. It's just, uh, I mean, they, That's like Joe said, they haven't announced anything. I mean, it's Fantasy Flight, so I feel like they're obligated to do some expansions. Yeah, it's kind of weird, though. Like, the amount of time it's gone feels like maybe it's not going to get anything, which is weird. Yeah. Especially since it seems to have gone over very, very well with the fans. Yeah. It's just weird, but Fantasy Flight's been a weird place for the last couple of years anyway. So. Yes, it's very true. Also, I will die on a hill that the new Caprica ending of Battlestar Galactica is garbage, and you should feel bad if you like it. Add me in the comments! Please, please, at Joe. All right. One of the games that comes to mind for me is the Pandemic expansion on the Brink, which was the first expansion to the original Pandemic game which was Z-Man Games and designed by Matt Leacock and Thomas Lehman. On the Brink also has modular expansions, but for the On the Brink expansion, every single one of these modular expansions makes the game 
harder. And for anybody who has played Pandemic, the one thing that that game does not need to be is harder. (laughs) But I guess if your gaming group is just like really gung-ho about Pandemic and you basically solve it, this expansion, I think, goes the extra mile of giving in to popular trends within board gaming at the time of its release. Because the On the Brink expansion released a hidden trader mechanic. Hooray. This basically makes the game impossible, and also, it doesn't need it. It is so unfounded within the Pandemic series that it's just like, why? Oh, 2009, that was pretty much required during Yeah, the- exactly. And it's funny because the other modular expansions is the virulent strain, which one disease becomes deadly in unpredictable ways. The other is the mutation, which makes the disease behave differently. And so it changes the mechanics of the game. And I was curious, so I went through some of the other pandemic expansions like In the Lab and State of Emergency. And again, On the Brink put me so off expansions for Pandemic that I never pick these up. But in researching them, a lot of the modular material in those other two expansions were re-implemented in the Legacy Edition. So State of Emergency, for example, introduces using quarantines to stop the spread of an uncurable disease, which, for those of y'all that have played Pandemic Legacy, probably sounds familiar. And it's like, man, they just, in my book at least, they really shot themselves in the foot by giving into that popular trend rather than actually thinking of something that would change the mechanics of the game in interesting ways without increasing difficulty. Well, I mean, to be fair, there are certainly lots of threads on the board Game Geek talking about how the bioterrorist is the best thing that ever happened to Pandemic. So different strokes for different folks. But I agree that I don't think it was a necessary thing to go. I mean, maybe we're just not very good at pandemic and people who've been doing a lot of it find it easy and wanted more challenge. That is always true. And I think that should just go with everything Mm -hmm. that we talk about today. It's all our own personal opinions. And if you don't like it, that's okay. Yes. Come online. Please keep listening. Come online and argue with us. I'm looking at the designers on this expansion. Matt Leacock, of course, designed the original pandemic, Mm -hmm. but also Tom Lehman who is crazy, crazy (laughs) smart. And I've played games with him, and he will crush you at everything. So I wouldn't be surprised if every expansion he designed ramped up the difficulty to, like, level 12 Because he's expecting everybody to be as good at it as he is. Yeah, and so he's probably played it to death before he touched the first expansion and knows every in and out and basic strategy. So, yeah. And don't get me wrong, like, the -the on-the-brink expansions that I've played are perfectly functional. Like, they work, there's not errors. It's just ridiculously hard in a very unfun way, in my opinion. Now, I also personally don't love hidden trader mechanics, so, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but I don't know. It just, I think this is a good example of a unnecessary expansion because it pushes the game over the shark. Like, it makes the game jump the shark, really, in my opinion. The other thing that I think is interesting about Pandemic is there was a stretch where they did a number of different expansions, and since then, most of what they've been doing are just, here are new versions of Pandemic. If we want to experiment with a different mechanic, it's not going to be an expansion, it's Iberia. Here's, you know, the one where you're fighting against Cthulhu. You know, it's like, 
you're taking the same mechanic and instead of just trying to pile stuff onto the base game, you're just saying, well, here's a different way we could play with that mechanic, which I think while it's more expensive because you're buying a full game each time, I think it works better because it's a little bit more of a curated experience. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you do need a new board and cards. Um, by that time, the pieces are pretty cheap. So you might as well do a new game. Yeah, like a weird one, the Fall of Rome expansion, or expand alone. <laughs> I don't know. What, the re-implementation, right. <laughs> there we go, has cities and sites that can be impacted by two different diseases, like more so than just having the diseases explode into them. And so it's like, here's a slightly different take on that with a new theme. And that feels, I think, a lot better than here's some modular content that just takes this base mechanic and makes it more complicated and more difficult. And I've heard that all of those standalone re-implementations are good. Yeah, I have a a Warcraft-themed one where all the diseases are caused by the Lich King and your ultimate goal is to defeat the Lich King, which... I've heard is very good, and I'm frankly fascinated to try. Yeah. I'm down. Yes. So another one that has had a slew of expansions of varying levels of quality, at least in our perspective, is Seven Wonders, which was originally 2010, Antoine Bauza by Repost Productions. The Seven Wonders, the base game, is a great game. I mean, there's pretty much, I won't say no denying it, but it's a really solid game. Very well put I together. I disagree with you on that one, Brian. What? I think get off my podcast. <laughs> base game of Seven Wonders is not good. Really? Why do you say that? So, especially in retrospect after having played the expansions, the base game is very random and very chaotic and it is still fun to play, but the expansions do a lot to lift it up. So, you're saying that the improvements made by the expansions have retroactively made the base game bad? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, well, I disagree with that assessment, but anyway. (laughs) Well, let me put it this way. I think Seven Wonders is a perfect example of an expansion being so good, I do not want to play without them. Yeah, and I think the first couple expansions, in particular Cities, I feel like is, I don't want to say essential, but it is a strict improvement. You know, it basically adds a different suit to the game. I think that's the one that actually expands it out to eight players. It is. It yeah. adds another turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes the game slightly longer. There is also Leaders, which is very good. Leaders is a good example of a, I don't know the best word for it, but basically it just sort of is a little thing that wraps around the rest of the game. You basically have an extra phase at the start of each age where you are bringing out a leader. That is just an extra way to give you some abilities or points. I think the reason Leaders works is because of just how lightly it changes the game's length. Yeah. It is literally, here are four cards to pick from, pick one at the beginning of each round. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, if it were any longer than that, I think leaders would not work. Yeah, like you say, it's a very lightweight addition that I think adds some neat new flavor. And it's neat because when you get your leaders, you draft them, pick them out of the start of the game, it can kind of shape the direction that you move your city in, which I think is a nice touch. But Seven Wonders is also one of those games that beyond a certain point, the weight of the accumulated expansion starts to make the whole thing fall over. 
For us, I think that point was the Babel expansion, which is a modular expansion with two different pieces in it. There's one that basically, before the game, sets up laws that affects all players if you put them into play, like, you know, limitations or some things are more expensive or war is worth fewer points, whatever it might be. And then there's a different one that have basically great projects that multiple civilizations can contribute to. I haven't played much with Babel. I think both of those expansions are probably individually fine, but it reaches a point where just the accumulated stuff that you've got going on is too hard to keep track of. One of the great things about Seven Wonders is that it plays quickly because the decision space is fairly small. Here is a hand of cards. Pick the one of them that will do you the most good or that you want to keep your neighbor from happening. Play it and move on. There's there's strategy to it, obviously, but it's relatively simple moving. Leaders, again, is kind of one thing at the start of the phase, which is fine. But then as you start to get, well, there's all these additional things you can spend your actions and your resources on. It just becomes too cumbersome. I wonder if Babel might be more successful if we tried it alone. But also, like Mike said, cities and leaders, I kind of just always want to play with. I think from what I remember playing with the Tower of Babel expansion, it has the problem with there not being enough actions within the game to actually consider it. So, like, there are many times where I can barely manage to get, and sometimes even don't manage to get, my own personal wonder built. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that could be because it's just not playing into my strategy. Right. So if I've got the civilization that is when you build your wonder, you get fighting power. Well, if I'm not going into fighting power, then I'm not going to be interested in building my wonder, which I think is where you're then like, ooh, but I could build the Tower of Babel, which everyone has access to. But because I'm looking at the point salad that is available on my cards, it makes it really hard to also consider the point salad that is in this collective board that everybody can contribute to. Yeah, it takes Seven Wonders, which is fundamentally a relatively light game. And I think makes it too heavy to be practical. There are two more expansions that have come out since, or one has come out and one is coming. Armada is this whole additional set of subboards that now you can do seaborne exploration and that kind of thing. And I think it's too much. There's another one that is scheduled for this year called Edifice. Edifice. And I'm not even looking at it because my personal Seven Wonders has reached its capacity. I do cities and leaders, and I'm basically done there. And I'm happy with that. From the very little I've read about Edifice, it does talk about another cooperative component. Mm -hmm. And Armada, I know, allows for team play, which might be interesting. I just, my Seven Wonders brain space is full. Oh, but Brian, now they can release a big box and put all of them in one big box for you. They have just re-released the entire game, you know, and I don't know which of the expansions might be included in there or have been re-released for second edition or whatever, so... I don't know, Brian. You said Team Play Seven Wonders. That actually does sound pretty good. <laughs> Ooh, I might get an expansion uh, point. <laughs> I mean, you will never get a point off of me, Brian, because I'm poor. That's true. That's true. <laughs> You're a teacher. That's understandable. So that's Seven Wonders. Frank's back! <laughs> Machi Koro is a, a lovely little fluffy game by Masio Suganuma, and we uh, play this and various versions of this type of game quite a bit. When Machi Koro came out, uh, we played it left and right, kind of that Settlers, but a quick fix kind of game, but very light. What actually happens is you roll dice from 1 to 12, and everyone gets whatever the buildings you have matching that number. You get your resources and gold and just cycle through. 
In the original game, all of the buildings were available for purchase. So you could basically pick exactly what you wanted, assuming you had the gold to do it. Okay. But there are some definite paths through Machikoro, some particular common strategies you line up and quickly the game became yeah i'm going all low numbers i'm going all the farm route etc and the game became pretty scripted at that point so the best expansions are well space base <laughs> which is a, a better game but also the harbor expansion as well as machikora 2 adopted a take where basically there's a series of scaled decks like three different decks and you just have only four to six cards on offer from the deck with a lot more variability in the cards that's it more variability in the cards and a rotating deck so you can't always choose what you want so that really kind of makes you wonder what you're spending stuff on agonize a little bit over it and really changes up the game it makes it a game with a lot more legs in the original game okay MK2 is actually kind of like Harbor. It's kind of embedded the uh, Harbor expansion, but then they retool, recurate the cards to make it a better game and actually simplify it. So it's an even simpler game than the original, which is surprising because it's not a complex right. game. In between that, they did Millionaire's Row, which is a bunch of cards, this weird mechanic where you can renovate buildings and put them under renovations. You can upgrade them and give you different upgrade powers for the building. And then you had to wait to see if you got the other building if you're playing with the harbor. And it just uh, made it frustrating. It also added some more buildings for the harbor variant, which were okay, but it seemed like a different designer did the Millionaire's Row expansion. The buildings had a very different flavor and were annoying. Okay. So... Machi Koro never really landed with our group, so we didn't get all that into it past the base game. Yeah. I will stand by, though, that I really enjoyed, not really an expansion, but the Legacy Edition. It was Machi Koro in a box that had expansions that you would add every game, and we really enjoyed it. The story is great, and kind of the way it comes together and the way it expands is great. Rob Davio was definitely the key behind the uh, legacy parts of the game. As he discussed with us back in episode 13. The legacy version added for me one particular element, which are permanent cards that you kept always. Mm -hmm. And those are wildly different in power. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got the really good one and milked it to death <laughs> and uh, made my other players hate my guts. So I'm actually thinking that, oh, really, just that one flaw. Just really breaks the game. Yeah, totally. But I did like a lot of the elements introduced. It kind of mixed things up slowly over time and did a good progression in the legacy, except for that stupid permanent expansion part. Yeah, and like I said, it was the kind of legacy game where every time you play it, it introduces just a small new rule over time. And then by the end, you're just playing a completely different game than what you started with. Totally, yeah. Okay. But yeah, Machi Core 2, I think, is probably the best version of all of them, except for Space Base. <laughs> but yeah, it's actually a decent game. You know, I never realized, probably because I never really played Machi Koro, I never realized that Space Base was kind of a, a reskin of it, adaptation of it. I quite like Space Base. So. Oh yeah, totally. Right. I'm a huge fan. Good to know. Now, this one should be fun. <laughs> We've talked about this game so many times, I feel like we should just start calling it Friend of the Podcast. 
Kingdom Death Monster, uh, released 2015 by Adam Poots, released by publisher Kingdom Death. I'm going to start on the negative here first. And uh, I came to a realization while looking at this. I've been mispronouncing this expansion for years now. I feel fairly silly about it. Spidacules is what this thing is called. It's one of the standalone monsters. It's a huntable monster in Kingdom Death. Maybe it's Greek. Maybe it's Spidiculis. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I mean, you're being very kind to me there, Brian. <laughs> but this uh, expansion, it's a single monster. comes with the, the cards for its AI deck, cards for its hit locations, and the model that you build. This gigantic, eight-legged, spindly-legged spider monster that takes up most of the board that you have to assemble. And when you put this thing together, and I've seen this in person because we played this thing, the entire model sags in the middle as it tries to hold up the weight of the bald monster in the middle of all of these legs. It's the most precarious model I think I've ever seen outside of maybe, um, uh, what is it, Weird Games? Uh, what's the name of their Malifaux. Malifaux. <laughs> Yeah, but Malifaux doesn't do anything on this scale. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. But I have seen some pieces of plastic in that that I'm afraid to breathe around. Here's your goblin's beard. Good luck putting <laughs> it into his face. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, not only do you have like eight legs holding up this very precariously as the model sags, it also has even tinier little tendrils hanging underneath the spider monster and a little lure with a little dead body hanging off the end of it. So it's just like everything about this model screams break me. There's so many failure points, and it's just not designed to exist in our world. It's very visually it's striking. <laughs> it is. It is a very pretty model. It's very cool looking. Well, pretty is a, not a word I'd use, but... <laughs> well, I mean, pretty pretty for Kingdom Death. <laughs> I remember trying to transport this thing to, to your house, Jason, and it's just like, there is nothing that I could put it in that would A, hold it, and B, not destroy it. You had to carry it in your human hand. Right. Uh-huh. And you can't yeah. even like turn it upside down, like to not rest on the legs. It still rests on the legs, and then you're gonna break the little dealy whopper hanging off the front of it. So it's just yeah. like, what, what? Like I would love to see the behind the scenes of all of their studio photos of how this thing was being held up, because like they're definitely cheating somehow. You know, mine doesn't sag. I don't know what really the said. Totally, I, mine doesn't blue? sag. I think it just hangs low as intended by design. Yeah, that is the design. Well, That's true. Well, that leads to the next problem. <laughs> I have an issue with the Kingdom Death standalone monsters because they announced them and they're all cool. I want to include them in my game. The biggest problem I had with those standalones is they didn't really have rules for using non-base game monsters in the base game campaign when the game first shipped. Now, they've retroactively gone back and made rules for like, oh, if you want to include Spidocles or these other monsters, or Spidocules, yep, yep, and these other it. monsters, <laughs> then this is how you can do it. But like, And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the best expansion for Kingdom Death has not been released yet, and it's called Campaigns of Death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't wait for that one. We'll talk yeah. about that someday, one. Someday. someday. But yeah. like, I think Spidocules is particular egregious because yeah that model is unusable in the board game i'm guessing a model of that scale doesn't actually move no uh, it doesn't, doesn't is really, it necessary no. to have it for gameplay or can you just like no. have it on the table watching you uh, while you play the kind of because there are some ai cards that trigger saying you know if a survivor is in the shadow of the model itself this yeah. thing happens so does it depend on how you have the game table lit <laughs> No, they define oh, what okay. the shadow is. <laughs> but like as a board game mechanic, 
that shadow could have very easily just been a tile that you put down yeah, on a template. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then uh, there's also things where it's like you need to put the survivors underneath the physical model, and it's just not possible with all the things hanging off of this uh, this, yeah. this spider. They were certainly more successful in their monsters that came along with a campaign. Mm-hmm. Right, like the Dragon Tyrant, oh, so or good. the Flower Knight, or... The Sunstalker. The Sunstalker. All of those, I think, are a lot more successful, both as like a content being added to the game, and also their figures weren't precarious monsters that would break at any moment. I just put a link in the Zoom chat to a picture on the board game game, which may be the best solution to this problem. Oh my god, Jesus. Oh yeah, wow. sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, that looks safe. <laughs> <laughs> so... Oh my gosh, wow. I'm Bunch stressing me out, yeah. man. Yeah. Oh my Bunch god. Points. That poor person got their Spidocles and their it's abyssal wood tree. tree <laughs> the lonely tree. Entangled. Now they could never separate them. Oh boy. <laughs> anyway. Joe had a good thought on Kingdom Death expansions. Yeah, the best expansion is clearly Aeon Trespass Odyssey. <laughs> By what do you mean, Joe? I don't understand. They're totally different games. How could you possibly say that? Okay, Jason, let's investigate them (laughs) being totally different games for a moment. Mm -hmm. Let's start with, are you fighting giant monsters in them? We'll start easy. Oh, I thought we were going to start with the box, Joe. The box is white, it's not black. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Are you fighting giant monsters in them? Uh, Yes. Yes, you are. Do you have a phase between fighting giant monsters where you do building of long-term stuff? Hmm. On your ship. Do you do do that on your boat? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, See, Aeon's Trespass is totally different. You're building a boat, not a village. That's right. Do you take pieces that you get from the monster and use them to build items that you equip to fight other monsters. Uh, Why, well, yes, you do, Joe. That, that sounds familiar. Is the giant box that it come in a single stark color with the name of the game written in a slightly off shade of that color that makes it almost unreadable? Hmm, now that you mention it, it is a large white box that has similar dimensions to the Kingdom Death box. Ah, ah, see, see, Kingdom Death is a black box. That's yes. totally oh, different. Oh, oh, it's totally different, you say. Hmm, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. The games are... You don't have to put the miniatures together in Aeon Trespass. <laughs> Which is That's why it's better. Nope, 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 nope. That's not oh, true. You're right, you're right. You're there right. are true. a couple you, that have are. exchangeable parts that need to be assembled. Okay, so Jason, did the developer of this game release a separate set of art-based models to fund <laughs> their giant box? <laughs> yes, and to Curtis's everlasting disappointment, I did not buy the nymphs. Ah. <laughs> Were they half-naked women pinups of Greek goddesses and I mean, concepts? Potentially. It's very hot there. They can't wear a lot of clothes. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. I really enjoy all of the things that are functioning the same about uh, Into the Unknown and um, Kingdom De- uh, is that It's actually published by the King... It's called Kingdom Death? That's their yeah. publisher name? I yeah, that's that. their publisher. Yeah, believe it or yeah. not. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so I think it's super fascinating how Into the Unknown functionally said, man, that's a good platform you have for making money there thanks (laughs) it's an homage i did show the showdown board to sandy and she's like going wait is this a kingdom death expansion (laughs) (laughs) thank you sandy (laughs) the games are extremely similar in a lot of their visuals and style and the way you play them the way they do lots and lots of different pieces are exactly the same we're extremely similar luckily you can't copyright game mechanics so therefore what i'm actually wondering is if the guy who did aeon trespass odyssey was like 
wow, I really like Kingdom Death. I'd like there to be more of this game. But I think it would be faster for me to design and publish my own game <laughs> before the Kingdom Death stuff is actually released. And guess and what, me. Brian? He was 100% correct. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, he literally is. There's three campaigns in the core box. Like, he came out with three campaigns before the next Kingdom <laughs> Death dropped. Uh, uh, the, I have the two more will probably make it before it is. Yeah, well. yeah, I think so too. But all that's to say, like, there are differences. This one's definitely more story based. So, where there is story in Kingdom Death, it's kind of you fill in the blanks yourself. All the story elements come out through either singular events that happen in the town or the hunt events, and you kind of assemble the story as you play the game multiple times. And then has actual missions for you to go on, has actual things for you to do. There's a map exploration element to it. There's a more of a resource management type thing. Yeah, a lot of big like choose your own adventure kind of stuff with yes. paragraphs. So I'm actually really torn about this because on one hand, I really enjoy the brevity of the Kingdom Death story elements, where it's like, hey, you're walking along a bunch of faces on the ground and then they all turn to feet and you float away, now you're dead. Like, that leaves so much to the imagination that I'm like, that has so many implications about this world, oh my god. The Aeon's Trespass stuff has started to get to the point where like they're throwing a bunch of proper nouns at me and I'm just like, who is this person again? Why do I care about this? Wait a minute, what are we supposed to be doing? It... I don't think it's quite there. It's certainly, you can see, like, if you made a continuum, right, like, obviously Kingdom Death would be on the far left-hand side of this continuum, arbitrarily, and, like, in that place where Kingdom Death lives in other medium, like, Dark Souls lives, like, really, really minimalist storytelling, Mm -hmm. and frankly, Kingdom Death, in a lot of ways, its storytelling is amazing because of the minimal level. And, like, as you travel along this, right, you get to, like, Aeon's Trespass, it's probably a little bit to the right of center, and then, like, far to the right of center is, like, Madara, yeah. <laughs> where, you know, there are, like, whole, like, stories in between everything with lots of characters and stuff going. Madara is a novel occasionally interrupted with gameplay. Yeah, yes. and, like, I wouldn't describe Aeon's Trespass, it's not at Madara level, It is right? not, it is not. But I do not disagree that we are closer to Madara than to Kingdom Death along that continuum, for sure. Yeah. There's a lot more story. The story is more expansive, right? I really like the Choose Your Adventure paragraph parts, but the time between fights is like, in Kingdom Death, you do a fight, you spend 15 minutes making stuff (laughs) and doing Kingdom stuff, and then you go to another fight. And in our experience with Aeon Trespass Odyssey thus far, it's like you do a fight, then you do like an equivalent amount of time adventuring around, collecting resources, exploring the map, meeting new characters, doing new stuff, and then you do another fight, right? The fights are a little bit more spaced out. I haven't decided yet, much like Mike, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It definitely makes it feel different than Kingdom Death, which I think is good. I think if it didn't have that part, it would maybe feel too Kingdom Deathy to me. <laughs> that would be buried. On the line. <laughs> well, I mean, like, it would be like, oh, this is just more Kingdom Death. And don't get me wrong, I like more Kingdom Death, but like, the way they're telling their story and the extra, like, adventure part does make it feel a little different, which I appreciate, because there's a part of me that doesn't want to get burned out in Kingdom Death, because when more Kingdom Death comes out, I want to play it, and I don't feel like Aeon Trespass Odyssey is burning me out in Kingdom Death. Like, it could be 
if it was more directly ripped off in the non-big monster fight ones. But like the big monster fight stuff is just Kingdom Death functionally. What especially surprises me of mechanical changes is how similar even those monster fights are. Like the first monster you fight in Aeon's Trespass is basically the exact same fight as in Kingdom Death. Like to a staggering degree. I think ultimately it's a little limited by the format of the mechanics, right? Because like when you use all of Kingdom Death's mechanics, it's kind of hard to get away from the way Kingdom Death just works, mm-hmm. right? Like when you want to do a boss battler where spacing and placement really matters and enemies roll dice to attack you and you roll dice to attack them and it's kind of hard to defeat them, it kind of begins to slowly narrow the design space that you have. And they, you know, they made some different design decisions, some of which I like, some of which I don't like, some of which we've already decided to internally make a change to, to make it a little bit more entertaining. One thing that we ended up doing is uh, making crit rolls on the attack have some kind of meaning, because in Answer's Odyssey, and this is getting super deep in the weeds, so Brian might just cut all this. I might. But I didn't. But in Answer's Odyssey, when you roll a crit, you have a one die, that is the crit die. And if it is a 10, you crit. And there's no expanding of the range, at least that we've seen thus far. But if you crit, that doesn't mean anything unless you also wound. In Kingdom Death, it did matter that you crit, because critting was actually on the second roll. There's actually only one roll of D10s, and there's a second roll of different special dice, functionally. And so like the initial crit kind of doesn't matter. It feels bad when you crit and it doesn't do anything, so we made it, like, if you crit, you get a bonus to damage them, which is just a small Benny which makes crit feel a little bit more special because it felt less special because of the way it changed the rules. Minor safety note. We did also kind of change the rules for the Kingdom Death monsters crits because there were many, many hit locations in Kingdom Death where crits don't matter. And that's just not fun. That's true. We don't care. We only make it fun. But I'm having a lot of fun with it in general, uh, but it is staggeringly similar to Kingdom Death. <laughs> One other thing you forgot in your list of similarities was, is it named Noun Noun colon yeah, Noun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's yep. true. Yeah. They have a thing called the AT field, right? Which is Because <laughs> they're also liberally stealing from Evangelion. Okay. Oh boy, they are. <laughs> I have come to call that just the KD field, because clearly <laughs> it's just the Kingdom Death field around these monsters. It's fine. Here endeth part one of our expansions episode. Tune in again next month for part two, where we talk about terraforming Mars, too many bones, and yes, the Arkham Horror collectible card game. See you then. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Mike, tell us about a game you dislike an expansion for. I, that was a terrible intro. I'm just cutting that out. <laughs> Ignore it.